If only the teacher could see us now. I mean, wouldn't he be proud? Or, or at least at least in awe. And so by, by teacher, uh, the teacher or preacher or kohelet uh, in Hebrew is, is what it's called. It's kind of the main character of this strange book of Ecclesiastes. I'll probably mostly refer to him as the teacher. The Kohelet, that's the Hebrew preacher. Uh, it's a strange little book. It's in the wisdom section of the Old Testament. Uh, we started this series last week. But like, if this guy could see us today, he'd be amazed. Because people, we did it. We, we arrived. Like we, we accomplished what he couldn't have even dreamed. Where this teacher struggled, you and I abound. The things that, that he brags about, you and I take as, as commonplace. When he, when he writes here about pleasure, he's writing about the things that only in the ancient world, only like a king could be able to achieve, like the top 0.1%, like the people who could fly to space, right, or buy Twitter. It's like that kind of a person in his world. But for us, like the things that he lists out, are you kidding me? Well, what he's saying to his people back then is like, okay, you'll never experience all these things. There's no way you possibly can. Only a king possibly could. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. But now, every person in this room has more access than he did. We live like kings and queens. Now, you may, not, you may not feel like royalty. Certainly, there's a broad spectrum of humans, even in this room, right? We all have different experiences. But generally, generally speaking, if the teacher could see you now, he would be jealous. Think about that. Again, he writes as a king. One of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world, and he would look at your life and mine and drool. Even, even just think about his, his bucket list of pleasures here. He has this, like, this resume of delights that he, he walks through. And again, to the ancient readers, the ancient world, they would have been amazed. But for us, please, I can do better than this guy without even leaving my house, right? I mean, look where he starts, right? He begins with, with laughter. Let's just kind of walk through it real quick here, uh, and then we'll kind of try to unpack what it means. But he starts, he starts with laughter, right? And, and for him, like, he would have to, you know, find a funny person, a comedian, and, like, bring that person to his house who would have to travel there by foot or by, by horse and then stay there, and you just hope that he's funny, that you don't get bored with him. Like, I can watch Seinfeld anytime I want. And if I, if I get bored, I just go to the next thing and then the next thing, and then, like, there's no end, right? And then he, he, mentions, he mentions wine, he could, he could only have local wine, right? And bourbon, craft beer, those hadn't been invented yet. Then he, then he goes to, to fruit trees. Fruit trees. And we love to eat, don't we? We love to eat, right? But think about this. Like, we, we forget this in our, in, our, in our culture, in our world. Like, for him, like, you would only be able to have fruit once a year when it was in season, right? And only the kinds that can grow in your region, that's it, right? A king doesn't have power over the, the growing regions. But you and I, like, you walk into Aldi. You have more options than he could have even dreamed. Like we have, we have more availability, more access, heaps and heaps of food. Like the table of the greatest king in the ancient world couldn't even compete with your pantry, right? He goes to gardens, parks, lakes, flowers, all this, this natural beauty. Uh, and you and I, we can visit any park in the world, really. I mean, many of us can, at least. Or at least, like, city parks, state parks, national parks. We have, we have waterfalls and beaches and mountains. I mean, up your game, teacher. Singers, both men and women. Again, this is another part where we just completely forget. Like, if you wanted music in the ancient world, somebody had to make it for you. 
Like in that moment, like somebody right there then, if you wanted, so like there's not a lot of music in the ancient world. So he has that. But you and I, like we can listen to anybody anytime we want, dead or living the very best, all kinds of genres, any period of history, we can listen to it. And then concubines. Okay, so essentially he's talking about limitless sex. But, he, but even there, like that was, that was pretty expensive, right? You had to take care of them. They, they could get pregnant. Not, not to mention, obviously, the, the moral implications. And, and the Bible is certainly not condoning any of this behavior, right? That's, we know that sex is, is supposed to be between man and woman for, for life within, the, 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 within marriage, right? We, we know all of that. And yet we, we try our own version of this experiment, don't we? In our culture, we have, we have access to sexual pleasure of any kind, any time we want, any variety. Culturally, we have almost no rules. If you want it, you can have it. And you don't have to worry about getting pregnant. And a screen can't tell you no, which further shields us from the disastrous consequences this has in our lives. It's still exploitation, just like it was in this culture. We just kind of feel a little bit better about it, right? And so people, when it, when it comes to pleasure... Like, we crush this guy. This, this teacher, this king, he should be jealous of us. We have every pleasure he could imagine and more. We live like kings and queens, every one of us, better off even than him. And we're all so happy, aren't we? If you haven't already, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Last week... We began this study. Bill was, Bill was here with us. Um, we're calling this, this study, it's only seven weeks, so if you're like, oh my gosh, how long are we going to do this? Seven weeks, all right? This is week two. You can handle it. Uh, we're calling it Life Up in Smoke because Ecclesiastes, again, it's an odd book, right? It's pretty dark, and the teacher, Kohelet, again, in the Hebrew, uh, he's someone essentially, he's, he's, he's more like a character in the book than the author, right? There's debates on that because it has this intro and this, this conclusion that seem to be kind of the, the author's writing those pieces, and then you've got sort of the main characters, this, this long section in the middle, and it's, it's either, uh, oftentimes it's thought to be like, is it King Solomon or someone writing as if they're King Solomon or some other king? We don't really know, but again, he's more of a character than the author. And he's... He's looking back at his life. He's old at this point. I mean, frankly, he's a grumpy old man. And he's, he's looking back and thinking, man, life is such an enigma. Who can understand it? Who can get their mind around it? And not only that, he's looking back and saying, and it's ultimately disappointing, and I've tried everything, right? Nothing really satisfies. And he essentially is trying then to deconstruct life as we know it. Like the things that we hold on to, the things that we think will give us meaning, he tears them down one by one by one. And we'll, you know, we'll try to do that together, right? He, they're all hevel, he says. That's, that's the Hebrew. And uh, different translations have it differently. It's a hard one to kind of get our minds around. Uh, the translation we just heard read says vanity. Others say meaningless, but literally it just means vapor when he says hevel. Like, like a mist, smoke, right? That's why we're calling it life up in smoke. It's the stuff that you, you think you can grab onto, but every time you do, it just escapes your grasp, right? It's here for a minute, it's gone tomorrow, and yet still we keep grasping. And then he, he also uses this phrase regularly. This gives us kind of a, a clue to understanding what he's getting at. He uses the phrase, life under the sun. It's a, very common throughout Ecclesiastes. And essentially what he means when he says that is like life apart from God, life just purely under the sun, nothing above the sun, right? 
kind of a meaningless sort of secular view of life. That, that even, even the greatest thing, that's what he's saying, like uh, if everything is just under the sun, if that's all we have, even the very greatest things, they're still just hevel because they're here today and they're gone tomorrow and so are you. Smoke and mirrors, vanity and empty, meaningless. And he begins, again, he's going to walk through several of these. It's going to be fun, people. But he begins his quest for meaning, or really deconstructing our quest for meaning, by going to a place where many of us begin. And frankly, in our culture, our world, it's where many of us live. It's what we try to build our lives around, right? He starts with pleasure. Because pleasure promises. That's the first thing, right? You know it, I know it. Pleasure makes big promises, doesn't it? The the teacher knows it. And under the sun, right, in in a world that is completely separate from God is the idea, pleasure feels like everything, right? And so when he says in in chapter 2, verse 1, right, this is how he he starts this section off. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I I will test you with pleasure. Treat yourself, basically, right? But behold, this also is vanity, or hevel. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And then just to make sure we're paying attention, he goes through this list, right? We already kind of walked through that. But he covers like all five of our senses, right? Every, everything we possibly do to find pleasure, wine and beauty, food and wealth, music and sex, that he searched far and wide till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And this is sort of how he talks. Like, we're going to get used to kind of his voice throughout this. Uh, basically, like, we have short, miserable lives, right? That's what he's saying. Uh, where can I find just a little bit of happiness to grab onto until I die, right? That's, that's life under the sun. And we're living this experiment, aren't we? And we're crushing it. Where even kings would drool, right? We, we live under the sun, you and I. Uh, in, other, in other words, we have essentially given up on God as a reference point for meaning, right? I mean, that, that is the world that we inhabit now. We've said, no, there's nothing out there above that. This is, this is it. This is all we see. And that, this, is, this affects us as, as Christians just as much as anybody else, right? We end up believing that this is it, under the sun. That's all we have. And so God is not a reference point for meaning. And so the best that we can come up with, if that's true, the best thing that we can do to a solution for our dissatisfaction It's pleasure. Because pleasure makes big promises and it distracts us just long enough to forget for a moment how much our lives are smoke. And so, for example, at the the end of a long day, after all of our toil and exhaustion, what do we do? We don't reach for relationships contemplation or reflection or self-improvement. We reach for a cold beer, a bowl of ice cream, and a couple hours of Netflix. Did you, did you know that you can now watch Netflix at tea time speed? Like, they just, they just added this feature, like, for real. That, that's all you need to know about humans, right there. Um, or, or at least the time period in which we live. We have, we have so much pleasure offered to us that we have to cram it in. Right? which actually makes it worse. Like, who enjoys a show at two times speed? But apparently, apparently you can do it, right? It's too much pleasure. This is our world. Too much distraction, right? Normal speed just isn't enough. Or have you ever, ever been depre- depressed uh, at a buffet, right? 
because you ran out of room. You're like, why did I even come to this place? I can't fit any more in. But yet you keep eating, right? And it's not satisfying anymore. You don't even like it. You keep doing it over and over, and you feel more and more uncomfortable. I mean, I've never done that. Um, but I'm guessing some of us have, right? Of course, of course we have. This is what we do. A couple, a couple of months ago, our family, uh, we were at a fancier restaurant than normal, eating together, enjoying one another. But do you want to know what one of our primary topics of conversation was? I'm not kidding. It was what we were going to eat the next day. Or, or, again, I'm just letting you in. Like, I've never been on a vacation where I'm not simultaneously planning the next vacation. Because we, we have to outdo it. It's got to be better next time, right? We're constantly craving. And we do the same thing. We listen to, to, a, to music, and we're thinking about what's the next song, right? Or we're watching a show, thinking about what am I missing out on? Or, or what movie comes after this one? What's the next sequel, right? Or even making love, thinking about the next climax. Because for a second there, in a moment of pleasure... You forget how short and miserable your pathetic little life is. Again, happy Mother's Day. Glad you came to church. I know that's dark, right? But that's the teacher. That's what he's saying, okay? That's what he's letting us in on. You can try it, but it's going to disappoint you is what he's saying. Pleasure promises relief. It promises redemption. It promises, at the very least, distraction and forgetfulness, right? It promises love and intimacy, hope, and even, even salvation, and we believe it. And we give in again and again and again, and we think maybe this time it's actually going to work, but you know it's not because you've done it so many times. So you pour yourself another drink, or you get yourself another bowl of ice cream, or you look for another conquest or whatever it is, and we think, yes, this is going to be it, and then, then you've got to do it again tomorrow. It's hevel. And pleasure falls short. That's the second thing. Pleasure makes big promises that it cannot deliver on. Because it cannot, it can, it can maybe quiet the voices of discontent, right? Uh, the, the, the voices of despair deep within us, but it cannot silence them. And even, even, even so, every time we're like, okay, it didn't work for the teacher, but maybe it'll work for me. And so we try again and again, and we think this time, maybe this time I'll feel happy. This time it'll be enough. In verse 10, he kind of sums up that attempt. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Which has got to be like our motto, isn't it? Somebody, this is probably their life verse. Isn't this in the Constitution? Like, this is how we live, right? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And I think we know it. I think, I think we read those words, and we're like, yeah, maybe he's right. Because you and I, again, we have, we have access to pleasure that would make a king fall to his knees, and yet... We've never been more depressed, more anxious, more alone. Isn't that interesting? Maybe just for example, have you followed uh, all the news stories over the last few years on, on the rise of deaths of despair? Are you familiar with that language? Deaths of despair, so meaning drug overdoses, uh, alcohol-related deaths, and suicide. In the last two decades, 
they've increased, depending on your age group, anywhere between 56% and 387% in 20 years. Just this past week, the, the New York Times, again, highlighted the shocking increase in drug-related deaths, even just over the last five years. Those have, those have almost doubled in five years in America. And then, of course, you add obesity and heart disease, and we are literally pleasuring ourselves to death. And I don't, I don't know if it's just me or if I've been studying uh, Ecclesiastes a little bit too long. Um, those of you who know me can... You can make your call on that. I'm a little bit of a dark person. But uh, last week, uh, my son, he's 15, uh, he was talking about how he was looking forward to uh, something we were going to experience together as a family. And he said, Dad, I just hope it's not disappointing. And without thinking, like instantly, the words that came out of my mouth were, oh, David, everything's disappointing. (laughs) Parent of the year, right here. I mean, I, I was writing this sermon, and I texted my wife at one point, and I said, when it comes to talking, talking about how disappointing life is, I'm a natural, okay? So I, I get it. I know, I know some, of my, some of my personality comes out here. But do you, do you see how the teacher connects pleasure with toil? It's so interesting that he does this. He's talking about all this pleasure and all that. Then he starts using this word toil. Like, how often do we think of pleasure and toil in the same sentence? It's so interesting. But that, that, our, that our pursuit of pleasure actually becomes a toil. It becomes drudgery. And, and for two reasons. One is because we spend so much energy, so much life trying to get to that pleasure, right? And so whether it's, it's you've got to work really hard so you can have a good weekend. You've got to take that job that nobody would want, but you have to have a bigger house. Uh, you've got to work really hard so one day you can retire. So it all, like, we're trying. It's out there somewhere. And so we devote so much of our life. So that's one way. The other way is that, and we know this, is that you have to up your pleasure dose. Like, what, what was pleasurable last week is not going to be pleasurable next week. The things that you thought were, were luxuries when you were in college, right, don't possibly, you know, you, they're just commonplace in your life now, right? We have to up it. Like, dinner last night was good, but tomorrow, next week, you know, Mother's Day last year, you got to top that this year, don't you? Next vacation's got to be better, the next car, the next house, all of those kinds of things. It's why we got to watch shows at two times speed, because the next one might be better, and this is, this is why experts, and not just Christian experts here, but all kinds have noticed that sexual satisfaction is actually in immense decline in our culture. That, that pornography is literally ruining sex for people because you have to up the dose. You have to up the stimulation. It has to be more erotic or even, even violent to accomplish the same goal, and it's ruining intimacy. And we all know that intimacy is way better than sex, right? But it's ruining it. And addicts, Addicts know this better than anybody. And so maybe if that's described to you or that's been part of, part of your past or you have people in your life that you're close to who've struggled with addiction, like you, know, like you need more alcohol or more drugs or more pain while at the same time receiving less and less pleasure. It doesn't work. It's exhausting. And again, culturally, I think we're actually beginning to recognize this a little. Like on the one hand, we're obsessed with pleasure. We're sort of giving up on it too. Or, or at least becoming sort of disillusioned with it. There was, a, there was an article in The Atlantic a couple years ago. It's been attested to in a variety of publications that actually says we're in a, a sex recession uh, as a culture. That essentially is just too much work. It's like, we're just like, ah, nah. It's not worth it. We're, we're just tired of trying. And, and so our world is in this place where it, just, it doesn't know what to do. Like, do we, do we keep searching? Do we keep looking for the, the next thing? Or do we just, do we just give up in despair? 
And I think even, even as Christians, we're, we're tempted to say, well, pleasure, it must be bad, right? If it causes all this pain, all these, all these problems, this heartache, then I, I've got to reject it, avoid it, run from it. But that's, that's not the answer. Because pleasure actually points. That's, that's the third thing. Pleasure points. If it's an end in itself, it's a dead end. And you'll never be happy. It's a cul-de-sac of empty promises. But if we see it not as an end, but as a sign, as something that actually points to, to something greater, well, that, that actually changes everything. I mean, even just ask yourself, like, why are we so unsatisfied, right? We have everything. Like, why, why, why is it so un, unfulfilling, right? Well, it's because we were, we were never meant to live such limited lives with such broken pursuits. Because the teacher tells us, if we skip ahead a little bit to chapter 3, he says, God has set eternity in the human heart. Basically, what he's, what he's saying there is that your heart is too big to be satisfied with things so small. Because the infinite cannot be satisfied with the finite. Of course it isn't satisfied. We're, we're made for so much more. None of this was meant to ultimately be satisfying to us. C.S. Lewis, uh, the brilliant scholar, uh, an atheist who became a Christian later in life, uh, under, understood this so well. He writes, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, right, these, these pleasures, right? they're good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. But they're a sign. They're pointing to something else, and the country that he's speaking of that we long for is ultimately it's Eden, right? The garden. Like the reason we long for pleasure is because we were created for the pleasures of Eden, and the reason we're never satisfied is because we don't live there anymore. We, we rejected God, who is the source, the center of all pleasure, right? The creator of it, the inventor of it. We rejected him, and now we live on the other side of Eden. And scholars point out here uh, in Ecclesiastes, a section, all the imagery uh, of the garden, of, of Eden, um, throughout this, the teacher's rant, right, in this, this section, right? That he's, that he's essentially, he's tried to, to rebuild Eden. It mentions the garden, the trees, the pools, the fruit, like whatever his eyes desire. It's all very Edenic language. That is essentially, he's painting a picture of the garden, but without God. That, that he, he wants to build paradise, but he doesn't want God in it, right? And that's, like, look around. That's what we've done, people, right? We've tried to get everything we can. We've tried to create heaven on earth, without the center of heaven, without the center of the garden. But without God, those things cannot fill our hearts because pleasure was God's idea. Like he turned the water into wine. That was his first miracle. He gave us bread from heaven. He invented redwood trees, mountains, sunsets. Sex was his idea. Intimacy, right? All of these things but they were never meant to be experienced without him because they all are meant to point to him because he's, he is actually the center of all pleasure, the greatest pleasure we can possibly know. The psalmist, for example, declares in Psalm 1611, that says, says to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so what do we do? pleasure. 
So that it doesn't get the best of us, right? That we, so we don't, uh, or, or lead us to despair. Well, what do you have to do? Well, we, you have to put pleasure in its place. And there, there are three ways to do that, and I'll be, I'll be quick here at the end. Uh, three ways to put pleasure in its place. First is to fast. People, we are gluttons, right? Like, we think it's like morally wrong to say no to any desire we ever have, right? But you, you know you can say no to your appetites, right? Some of you are like, oh, I didn't, thought I, I thought I had to give in to those. Like, no, you, that makes you a slave. Do you want to be a slave to your own desires, to your own appetites? Nobody wants that, right? You can actually tell yourself no. We're gluttons for pleasure, and it's literally killing us, but one of the best ways to put it in its place is to just say no from time to time to legitimate things sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, you should obviously say no to illegitimate things, right? Inappropriate pleasures, desires, or things out of God's design. Um, but even, even the good things, that's what fasting is. It's saying, saying no to even good things. Like, no, I don't need this right now because those things are not in charge of me. Those desires do not control me. I can say no. And fasting, so skipping a meal or a couple of meals or a day or two without meals, right? Start small if you've never done this before. But this reminds you who's in charge. It reminds you that you're not a slave. And it reminds you where your real satisfaction actually lies. That when you've depleted yourself of something you need as basic as food, that God can be your sustenance. This is, this is the discipline we're focusing on all throughout this series uh, in the form of life. So if you have the, the journal or, or if you're joining us online with that, we're going to be kind of practicing fasting together, learning how to do this practice of self-denial uh, together. So that's the first thing. I, I, I don't know of a better, a better practice regularly in the life of a Christian uh, to put pleasure in its place than to fast. But second, you can't always fast. Sometimes you have to feast. That's a good thing too. So second is, is delight. You can't always fast. You also need to celebrate, right? And delight in the pleasures that God gives you, that, that see them as gifts. And when they're recognized as gifts from God, within his bounds, of his design of how he's designed them, like when, when we recognize them as such, they can actually point to our ultimate satisfaction that we have in him. And then we can enjoy these things as acts of worship to the God who made them. But the reality is, Instead of delighting in these things, right, savoring them with gratitude and joy, we consume. We take, we hoard, we exploit others to get what we want. Instead of using them as worship to God, we end up worshiping them instead of God. But again, the teacher says in, in chapter 3, right, I read part of this section a mo- moment ago, but look what he says, 3, 11 through 13. He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. And he's saying that eat, drink, and be merry. If you're wondering where that phrase comes from, it's, it's all over the place in this book. That's kind of his solution. Yeah, life is a mess, but you can still eat, drink, and be merry if it's done appropriately as a gift from, from God. So just one, you know, simple example of this, our family uh, on our Sabbath. So we, we're pretty intentional about trying to take a, an actual Sabbath, a day of rest, where we're not trying to control our universe and we let God do it, right? One day a week, I think we can do that. Um, and so ours is uh, 5.30 at fr- on Friday night until 5.30 on, on Saturday evening. Sundays, we're otherwise engaged, right? Um, and so we do, it, we do it over that. And we almost always begin our time together with a family toast. Like we pour something delicious and we, we toast. We essentially, like, we cheers God, 
That's, that's literally what we're doing for something that we're just we're grateful for from that week that we want to, to delight in. And then we, we drink and then we eat and we laugh and we enjoy one another. We enjoy God's gifts and we enjoy God. That it's, it's okay, right, to eat, drink, and be merry if it's done in worship to our Creator. Because all pleasure enjoyed as He designs is meant as worship to Him because He's the ultimate giver of all good things. And so to do it with gratitude in our hearts, with joy to him, right, to delight in him, we can feast. And when we do that, right, when we learn these rhythms, both of fasting and feasting, right, then we can rest, which is something I think we all crave so much, don't we? Instead of the the searching, the craving, the grasping at smoke, which you can never quite get in your hands, we can actually rest in our creator, because the end, the end of our story is not a boring life of asceticism and self-denial. Nor is it one of just like self-centered gluttony, right? The end of our story is a wedding feast. Like that's, that's the image that Jesus gives us in the New Testament, that we're, we're headed to a feast. We're headed, or he, he is the center point, right? He is the focus of that feast. Not the, not the delights, there are delights there, but that where he is the center, Right? For Jesus invented all of it for us, and he, he died in order to free us from our slavery to these things and to forgive us for our abuses and our exploitation, to set us free. And he empowers us by his, his Holy Spirit to actually live this out. But he actually, he also rose again from the dead so that he can offer us pleasure and pleasure forevermore. You know, I think some, sometimes my, my problem is with pleasure is that I think that I only have like 70 or 80 years to, to do it. I got to get it all in. I got to fit everything off my bucket list, right, before I die, before I just, you know. We think that way, don't we? That's life under the sun. But people, that is not our story. If you're with Jesus, you have, you have forever. Like, it never ends. You don't have to cram it all in now. Like, that makes us gluttons. We can, we can be patient. We can wait. We can deny ourselves because we know the good that is coming, the beauty. And then, then we can rest. Then we can find contentment. Instead of grasping after pleasure, it is then that we can actually find joy. Isn't that what we want? Let's pray. Oh, Father, even as I say these words, God, I just I know how easy it is for me to return to my old patterns, my own desires, and and believing um, in vanity uh, how these things can can fill me. So God, I, just, I pray that you would free me, free us. God, I pray that we would see them as gifts, God, to be enjoyed as worship to you, not as pleasures to be exploited or to be worshiped in and of themselves. And Lord Jesus, we just, we thank you. God, we thank you for forgiveness. Um, thank you for forgiving us for the ways in which we abuse and exploit. And thank you for, for promising to set us free. I pray that you would do that work now in each one of us, the power of your Holy Spirit. Set us free from the slavery we have to these things and give us hope ultimately in you, who, you who are our greatest delight. And even now as we come to your table, Lord Jesus, may we taste and see that you are good, that you are the satisfaction of everything you long for. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.